0: Welcome to Creative Vengeance, I'm your host Arne Stach. Episode number two, within a month, like I promised. This time I'm talking with the social entrepreneur Sebastian Stricker. He's the founder of the app Share the Meal and the company Share. Share launched about a year ago. Whenever you buy one of their products, a person in need receives the same thing. They started with water, cereal bars and soap, which is covering the basic needs and now they're constantly broadening their range. What I really like about Sebastian is that he explains things in a very calm way without any bitterness, but with a very positive attitude. Also without any attempt to claim the moral high ground. This is something that is also reflected in his brain share that he personally shaped a lot of course. I think Sebastian is a hippie at heart with a capitalist mindset. A lot of his arguments come from a business perspective and not from an ideological point of view. To me, that makes him somehow untouchable, which I think is great. If you want to know more about Share, check out their website, share.eu. Also, check out the podcast website, creativevengeance.com. If you like, follow me on Instagram or Facebook, even though Facebook seems pretty dead these days. So here's episode number two. I hope you like it. We are in the SHARE office in Berlin, It's Sunday, July the 14th, and with me here is Sebastian Strecker, founder of SHARE. One of the founders. One of the founders of SHARE. You founded SHARE together with three other people, Mm -hmm. with Iris, Ben and Toby. Yeah. You were the first four people, and we met, I think, at the end of 2017. I think
1: it was about two years ago.
0: Yeah. And you had a small room within the office of the agency Heimat that I work for. And Mm -hmm. you were across the hallway. You had a messy room with tons of packagings and bottles. And yeah, I think we ran into each other when you have been there already for a couple of weeks. And we talked for the first time longer than just saying hi. And and I thought, it's pretty interesting project that you're working on mm-hmm. and that was before share was launched and i thought hmm, could be interesting to do a campaign for this brand and then i thought okay but we have three or four big projects we're working on right now so mm-hmm. it would be a bit stupid to ask uh, to offer your help and then um, still did 15 minutes later i guess or half an hour later my boss guido called me and said hey Anna, you know, there's these guys of Share on your floor, and I thought maybe you can help them out by creating a campaign. And I thought, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> just wanted to ask. <laughs> so that's I just decided to not offer it. <laughs> so, but yeah, we'll get into Share later. Before that, I want to give a brief introduction about you. You realized that I did the research because you um, mentioned that you saw. I was stalking you on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so, you are from Vienna, or you studied in Vienna,
1: at least. I was born and raised in Vienna.
0: Okay, so you studied there for five years, and you studied economics. And business. Business, and mm-hmm. you also did a, a PhD in politics. PhD. So you are a doctor.
1: Yeah, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Unbelievable.
0: Why? Why don't you use that title actively? <laughs>
1: Um, I think it seems a little, I don't need to tell people what I did at university and I do have that one, uh, funny experience. I, w- I used to work with the Clinton Foundation in, uh, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and my business card said Dr. Sebastian Stricker and I was sitting in the ministry of health and I, I people kept asking me what kind of doctor I am, and I always had to say that I'm uh, a doctor of politics, and then they always laughed, uh, because they thought it was a medical doctor, and at that point of time, I thought it's really stupid to call myself a doctor uh, amongst all medical doctors, so that was pretty much the last time that I ever had it on a business card, Um, and since then, I don't feel I need to use it.
0: Because I remember when I met you, and in the first meetings we had also with Reve, you were on the list always as Dr. Sebastian Stricker, and then that disappeared and Mm. now two years later when I stalked you on LinkedIn I said oh yeah right he's a doctor but uh, you you lost that title on the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah I sometimes use it when I feel I need to uh, convey a certain picture that I actually did a PhD and uh, yeah I uh, did my time at university and uh, for some people that's important and in those situations where I feel it could be
0: important, and I sometimes mm-hmm. use it. But five years is pretty quick also. I, it took yeah. me five years just to graduate studying graphic design. Yeah.
1: I think the counterintuitive thing is that I, I really didn't uh, enjoy studying that much, but the consequence then for me was that I somehow felt that there was a way to do it really fast, and I ended up being the, at that time, the fastest ever student to finish a business degree in uh, in Vienna took me two and a half years for an MBA, and then immediately thereafter I did my PhD because I didn't want to start working. So yeah, it was fast. I think the other uh, the alternative would have been that I d- don't finish it, and so I'm quite happy
0: that it turned out that way. And after graduating, you spent four years as a consultant at BCG. Also when when i looked what you have done you you spent 4 years a business consultant and then after that basically you spent 10 years fighting hunger so the way you are introduced or you were introduced to me is always okay he's the he's the business consultant guy that now has this brand that uh, wants to fight world hunger. But um, after being at BCG, you spent half a year at the Clinton Foundation, then you mm-hmm. spent six years at the United Nations World Food Programme, and then you spent three and a half years with Share the Meal. So, and, um, It was actually
1: part of the time that I spent at WFP, at the World Food Programme. I also did Share the Meal. So, I think it's actually that I spent somewhere around five years, five, six years at WFP, I don't remember exactly, and of those, three years were
0: um, in parallel at WFP. I don't know much about what it's like to work in a business consultant company. I have some preconceived notions about that. Probably they are as true as um, the perception that people have of ad agencies, Mm so… I think, when, when I think about business consultant companies, I think, okay, these guys go into another company, they try to fire as many people as quick as possible to get the numbers up, and then they leave. So mm-hmm. th- that's, that's what I know. I know that's not true, but mm. um, what was it like working there and um, what did you learn there? So um, it was my first job
1: after university. It was, um, I think, a lot of the stereotypes are actually true. It was uh, an extremely challenging environment for me. I worked very, very hard. But I think it's certainly not true that the only thing that consultancies do is uh, cost-cutting and firing people. In my, I've only spent in total about four years there. But um, I think it pretty much spans all the projects a company does where it is willing to pay a lot of money for external support to come in. And that could be a cost-cutting project, but it could also be a growth project. So I think it really, as soon as a project is important enough that they have a significant budget and can afford to bring in outside people, that's where a consultancy may be able to help. So in my case, the uh, very first project that I did really was trying to understand what the growth levers are for financial institutions, for banks, Um, How do they become, in the end, more profitable and have a better performance on the stock market? That was my very first project. My second project was um, one bank had bought another bank, and they basically had to understand on how they can, how they best work together, or how they best integrate that smaller bank into the big bank. It was mostly an IT and risk management project. So very project management and process management driven uh, situation in the end we had two it systems that had to uh, somehow be uh, matched with each other took a lot of time it was a very important project for the client because if these two it systems somehow they had to yeah communicate start communicating with each other otherwise there would be no synergies of bringing bringing together these two banks and so there was a lot of money at stake uh, for for the banks they brought in some people that mostly were able to manage a lot of different stakeholders to make sure that the project in the end is finished on time uh, within the budget that they had planned for. Then there was a lot of other projects. I had some in Denmark working on pricing of, um, of uh, food products. Um, I, did, uh, I actually was involved in Teach for Austria, which is an NGO that was set up at that time in Austria, where you would try to get in young people into the teaching profession. It was a great project. I also did a lot of social impact projects there, supporting our teams while working with the UN or working with uh, other nonprofit organizations. I
0: saw a lot of different projects and a lot of different clients and industries. Many times with stereotypes, some of it is true, and the other half is it's totally different. And uh, we met one of your mentors when we had an appointment at Reve, Like in advertising, know. there's so many. Heino. Uh, really smart guy and then you can tell okay that's like in advertising where you don't think there's too many smart people maybe because they're just selling bullshit there's a lot of smart people and think that's in your in the industry you you started in it's probably the yeah. same
1: i think um i found out that consulting is not the right thing for me at least at that point of time in in my life but i really value the time that i had there i met a lot of people that I that I'm still in contact with or I'm still friends with and it was tough it wasn't the right thing for me but I learned a lot and I do believe that there are projects where consultancies can create a lot of
0: value mm-hmm. it was tough another stereotype is people work 24 7 how much time did you have besides working not much I would
1: say I was probably working for 80 hours a week on average
0: Mm. today is sunday we met here because we said okay it's probably good to have time and not do it during the week do you ever spend weekends in the office at share
1: yeah definitely um even though it's not as much as in the past there were times especially at the beginning of of my projects also share where i work i would say pretty much every second weekend now i would say it's probably once a month
0: yeah that's good so then after you spent time with the united nations you had this idea to um, create this app share the meal the idea in its most simplest form
1: uh, is that you have a button on your phone and whenever you press that button another person that suffers from hunger can eat for a full day and that means you have an app within that app there is the Share the meal button And when you tap that button, 40 euro cents, 50 dollar cents are being transferred to the United Nations. And with that, with those cents, 40 euro cents, they can feed one person for a full day. And the communication angle that we use there is that we said, imagine you're sitting at uh, lunch or at breakfast or at dinner. You have your mobile phone with you. You press that button and it's not only you that is getting something to eat, but someone else as well. And that worked. Fortunately, reasonably well. It's about a, one and a half million people uh, have have been using the app so far.
0: Yeah, and already forty-one million meals were shared until this day. Yeah, so about we feed about forty thousand people per day with wow. that app. And the day you you put this app onto the app store, what happened? How many people downloaded this?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So that was uh, I think luck meeting a lot of preparation. It was. Wow, I don't even remember what day it was. It was, uh, I think, in 2015, 2014, 2013. Wow, I'm bad with… Tw- 2013. 2013. It's uh, what my paper says. Good. Then <laughs> it was 2013. And we had spent months on preparing for that day. And the very fortunate thing is that we had an amazing interview with one of the most important uh, weeklies uh, in, in Germany, Spiegel. They did a, a fantastic interview with us. Uh, that they published in the morning, and that interview led to a lot of other media uh, jumping on board. Um, in the end, it was the evening news, television evening news, that uh, did a piece on on share the meal, and that then really um, catapulted us um, to the. I think we were the second most downloaded app in Germany on that day. Which then led to Apple and Google uh, noticing us and uh, initiated a fantastic partnership with those two companies, uh, which then helped us to really build something that then grew over time. In the end, it was about a hundred thousand people that downloaded the app on the first day, which uh, was a much needed uh, success to enable a lot of the things that came thereafter. Did you see that kind of success coming when you started? I think, I mean, it's hard to say that I saw it coming, but it was part of the plan to do it like that. I think we knew that we didn't have any money, so we wouldn't be able to do any advertising. So we had to somehow differently manipulate the process. And in the end, we knew we had to somehow get Apple and Google to notice us. And the only thing that we could do is either the app is viral, which is really hard to do, or we really get the media and the celebrities on board. And that fortunately worked. Yeah, sometimes these things work out. A lot of times they don't. In that case, fortunately it did.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you ever, you, you had a collaboration then with Apple. And mm-hmm. um, did you ever think about doing a collaboration with Instagram? For example, in a way that whenever somebody mm-hmm. takes a photo of their meal, that app says, hey, it seems like you just are about yeah. to post a meal. Do you want to donate one as well? Yeah, I think we we were... We were trying to get
1: partnerships with pretty much any company that it, that there is in the world, including instagram slash uh, facebook and we also did have collaborations with them. It happened that uh, or it happened to turn out that the collaborations with Apple and Google were the most successful ones. Um, I think also at that point of time, Instagram wasn't as big as it is nowadays, yeah, I think so um, but facebook Facebook was a very supportive Partner as well. They gave us a lot of uh,
0: free advertising. Yeah. Great. So in in the end, in 2017, I guess, you gave that app to the United Nations. You donated this app? That it was a bit before. We did the first funding
1: round with some business angels and and, uh, and one company here in Germany, an insurance company. Uh, they gave us, uh, I think, around $100,000 or something to build this thing. Um, And then the second funding round was already with the UN. And when that happened, it pretty much became clear that the app would become part of the United Nations.
0: So then naturally, somehow, you thought of something (laughs) even bigger. (laughs) And you ended up launching Share in the beginning of 2018.
1: Yeah, last year. Uh, in March 2018, yeah. uh, we launched Share, which is a fast moving consumer goods company um, based on the buy one, give one concept. So, whenever you buy a product from us, uh, we will be giving an equivalent product to someone in need. So, we started with uh, three products uh, we started with mineral water, snack bars, and hand soap. Uh, and whenever you buy a soap from us, we will be um, providing a soap through one of our partners, one of our nonprofit partners, to people in need whenever you buy a snack bar someone else gets a meal With the water it's a little bit different whenever you buy a bottle of water from us we will make sure that someone else in need gets one day of clean drinking water
0: when i first uh, looked at the at your product range the the soap seems a bit odd at the first moment hmm. but then you realize okay it's it's about the basic needs it's drinking eating and hygiene, hygiene. so yeah that makes a lot of sense the products that you are offering are in the quality of other premium products i guess yeah so you wanted to do two things first um, create products that are as good as the other products in the category and then additionally have that feature if you want to call it that way that another person a person in needs receives the the same thing yeah. that you're buying i think at the core of the idea it really is emotionally i'm
1: totally i'm fascinated by the idea that you buy something that you would be buying anyways, but whenever you buy it from that one brand, in our case, it's called Share, that someone else in need gets an equivalent thing. Mm. And it doesn't really cost significantly more than the other products that you could buy. Now, the hypothesis is that that only works if you are certain that the quality of the product is at least on par with the other product that you would have, uh, uh, that you would have bought initially. And so, it's for us. It's really important that when you go to the supermarket or the drugstore, or when you buy us on the airline uh, or on the train, um, that you feel you're buying a quality product. Um, you're not on, but so you you buy something um, for yourself, but it's not only for yourself. You're
0: getting a good product, but someone else is getting
1: an equivalent product as well.
0: Mm. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm correct, but I have the feeling that. When I was a kid, the problem of people starving in Africa was was talked about more. It was more in the focus. I don't know if, if I'm correct if that changed, but I don't mean to be sarcastic, but from a communications point of view, don't you have a hard time fighting hunger while everybody is trying to solve the environmental issues that we have? Yeah, I think… Um
1: So, I would agree that other issues are more on top of the agenda at the moment. Climate change, plastic waste, uh, maybe social inequality is another one of these hot topics at the moment. Hunger probably isn't as prominent right now, but I think it may also have to do with with the environment that we were in. Think at kindergarten. I agree. At kindergarten, I heard a lot about hunger. Uh, It might just be less of a topic once you work in an ad agency um, (laughs) or in a startup, as I am doing it. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of social issues, (coughs) also environmental issues uh, that we should be trying to solve. And uh, I don't want to say that one is more important than the other. It happens to be that food security and, and nutrition is something that I have a past in and know a little bit the stakeholders and know a little bit the topics.
0: Yeah, like I said, you spent almost ten years in the space. In this, uh, yeah, yeah, dealing with this uh, the, these problems.
1: Yeah, even though uh, at the Clinton Foundation I did malaria. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at the UN in the beginning I did HIV, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also food is only one component of our uh, yeah of our portfolio right now. Yeah, and We're you're
0: you're broadening your range. Yeah time after time at university i did a lot of climate change related
1: stuff so uh, i think i'm i like to call myself um, a social entrepreneur Um, i really think that it's uh, that it's so much more interesting if you try to um, to also solve true societal needs not only try to make money or or satisfy some hype need uh, so i don't really care as much uh, whether it's food security or whether it's health or whether it's education but i really want uh, my projects to have some deeper meaning mm. to them.
0: one of the projects that you supported in the beginning was in north senegal and you told me how poor people are there and i was surprised that i don't really know much about how poor people still are today in some parts of the world, so... um. Yeah, people can be really, really poor.
1: People can be... They can really have nothing. uh, And it's not too few of them. I mean, for you, you've just never had the opportunity to see that, or you've never had to see it. But I think it's just something that is remote. It's something that that we're also not being told as, as often. And I think it shouldn't make our lives that we lead here, in our case in Germany bad or give it a negative taste in any way but at the same time i think we should also wonder whether it's still okay to live in such a world uh, where we have we really have a good life but whether we think it's fair that uh, a good portion of the world without any fault of their own uh, really need to struggle w- whether they what they will eat the next day or whether they will sleep tonight um, or whether their kids can get the medical attention that they need or whether they will ever go and learn to read and write. I'd hope that I never meet someone who says that that is a fair situation.
0: Hmm. There's two numbers that stuck to my mind when we started to work on share with you. Global food production exceeds demand by 26% yet 12% of the world's population lives in hunger. Now, it's probably too simple a question for a pretty complex problem, but why is there still hunger in the world today? Yeah, I think it's a comp- you, can,
1: you can respond to that question uh, in a very academic uh, manner, while the reality is that we as a community haven't decided that we want to end hunger. I am convinced that We could end hunger very, very quickly if we really wanted to. Um, We have enough food. uh, We know how to do agriculture in reality, but uh, we haven't decided that it's an urgent enough topic that we really come together and solve this. To give you one example, at the World Food Programme, The general attitude is that we know how to solve hunger. We know how to do agriculture. We know how to transport food from one point to the other. We know how to distribute food to people who need it. And the whole thing would cost us about $20 billion per year, $20 billion. Now, we could all compare that with uh, the spending that we do for military purposes or for some other things, where it might be a bit questionable whether that really should be um, the focus of what we do. It is an amount that we would be able to pay, but uh, we haven't found the way to to yeah, to yeah get that money uh, and to funnel it into the right programs. And I think that is a tragedy. It's a reality. I don't want to... It's not that I cry about that all the time, but it's a reality that, in my mind, it will be really hard to explain that to
0: following generations, uh, why we didn't pay that money. Mm. I stumbled on an article that explained why Warren Buffett had decided at some point that he during his the major part of his lifetime he didn't want to donate anything because he says as entrepreneur his goal is to make as much money as possible and if he gives 10% of that money away every year then at the end of his life he won't have as much money as he would have if he just kept that money and worked with that money and then had I don't know how many billions he's donating now. And I think he gave billions to the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So it sounds a bit um, cruel to me when I read more about him. I think um, he's an interesting guy, but I don't know what's the best way, how to donate, when to donate, when to help. But if you said, okay, I'm going to wait 20 or 30 years now, and then I'm going to have a lot of money, and then I'm going to help people, would be uh, sad for the people who are in need now.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say something is right and and another approach is wrong. But I'm very glad that Buffett, who's I mean, an amazing businessman, probably a uh, hundred times smarter than than I am. But I, I'm glad. Maybe it's the wrong word, but I'm happy, and I'm uh, I'm also uh, impressed by him taking the decision that I think ninety nine percent or even more of his uh, fortune is supposed to go into social purposes. I think there is a there's almost a business perspective to it to doing good. Um, it's obviously it's a huge topic that we can discuss about for for hours and days. But there's there's a business perspective on when to do it, on when to the point of time when you start donating. Do I wait for until I'm dead, or do I immediately start? But then there's also a moral argument uh, about it. I think the moral argument is is relatively is relatively easy. Most of us would agree that it's unfair if kids die from hunger, to put it into really simple terms, and that we do want to live in a society where that actually doesn't happen anymore. If I was to, if we now were to exit our office and we saw a kid on the street dying of hunger and someone told you it costs 40 cents to feed it for a full day we'd feel not only would we do it, I would assume, but we'd also feel some sort of moral obligation to not wait, but do it immediately. So I think that argument is relatively simple. And it's actually also, it's not only that we feel it, but it's also, it's international law. It's a human right for people to have that minimum level of of resources for them to not die of hunger, not die of diseases, but to have that basic support. So it is actually a human right. And hence, I think I very much understand why the UN has placed the role that it plays and why we should, as a world community, give the resources to those organizations to fulfill their mission. In regards to the business perspective, it actually, from an economic point of view, it really pays off to fight hunger, but also to provide education and and and, and basic health services for food and nutrition I know it uh, or while I was still with UN we would usually say that one dollar that you invest into food and nutrition projects usually has a return on investment of twenty dollars so you invest one dollar and you get an econ- economic return of twenty dollars it really pays off for people to be to be fit to live uh, to be able to work to be able to sustain their families that's a really good investment so if you were to run a comp- a, a country and you'd be wondering where you should put your budget, it really pays off to make sure that your people are well-off and to at least have that minimum level of uh, quality of life. And hence, I think, not only do we have this moral obligation to help people, but it really also makes sense to make it as fast as possible because the return will be so much bigger uh, and it'll be so much easier to then make life even better thereafter.
0: Mm. There's always, I think, when companies, and even when you launched Share which Tom, is a company. Yeah. The the press was overwhelming and people loved it, but still there were critical voices and one thing that I read in a paper was going into the same direction like the response from a, a family friend of ours. He has been a teacher for his whole life. He's been political activist his whole life. Pretty good guy but he has his doubts about the um, role of business. Yeah, so I told him what we helped you with to launch this brand share, and he said, yeah, but isn't that, I mean, a company doing that kind of stuff, helping, isn't society supposed to do this kind of help? Okay, I never thought about it that way, but because I know you, and I know the reason you're doing this is not to get rich. The reason is to help. So I think, of course, society should help but is it forbidden for companies to do something against these issues
1: yeah you can i mean you, you can imagine uh, that's uh, a discussion that we're uh, confronted with uh, quite often i think the the, the the one question is can companies or businesses ever do good or can they ever also have the motivation to create societal value not only profit that's the one uh, topic that people really like to discuss. And the other topic that I feel is um, if we say that we as a society sh- should try to end global hunger, um, then I think the next question is what, what actually makes society? Who, who are these societal stakeholders that are supposed to, to solve such an issue? I think there's like this one perspective on who are the societal players, and you would say there's the first, second, and third sector, with the first sector being uh, the state, the second sector being uh, civil society, NGOs, non-profit organizations, and the third one being the business world. And I think it'd be kind of an odd situation where you'd say it can only be the first and the second sector, but the third sector is not allowed to play a role. Uh, So I would argue well, okay, I'm running a company, it'd be really great if I'm also allowed to try to create social value. I think the big discussion is, who actually has the highest leverage to create social value? Is it that really that value, is it really that we best fight hunger through the state? Or is it really that we best fight hunger through nonprofit organizations, through charities, through volunteering? Or is it really that we best fight hunger through the business world? And um, I don't want to now make the case that one is better than the others, but I do want to make the case that the business world can play a role there. I think we've all tried in the past over the last decades, we've tried to solve the hunger issue. I know a little bit about the hunger issue because that's, that's, that's what I'd like to use as an example. When I joined the World Food Programme eight and a half years ago, nine years ago, it was less people suffering from hunger than it is today. I think that's absolutely unacceptable. It cannot be that over the course of eight years, especially those years where I worked on the topic, that there's more people suffering from hunger than uh, at that point of time. Unacceptable. There's no reason we've gone through an economic boom phase. It really is unacceptable. Um, So why is it that we find it so hard to solve that issue? is it really that we can play the game is it really that we can just extrapolate the business as usual scenario or the the way that we've done uh, things in the in the past now i told you that it costs 20 billion dollars so that's what the un says it costs 20 billion dollars per year to end chronic malnutrition which would be fantastic it's something that's been around uh, with us for thousands of years imagine if we were, if we really wanted to and if it was let's say it's not 20 billion but 30 billion it's definitely it's something that we could afford But the reality is neither the first nor the second sector succeed in getting that money. It's not the the German government is not able to provide those uh, $20 billion. And neither is the nonprofit sector or the charities or the volunteering able to do that. And why could that be? Well, one of the arguments that I do believe also play a role is because they just hardly do any value creation. The money... And that's a fact The money that we need is not coming through governments. It's not coming through charities, but it's coming from the business world. Only if the business world does value creation, only if it does profits, there are taxes, and those taxes go to the governments, and the governments can spend that money. But if the business world is not creating those profits, there is no tax revenue to spend on, uh, on, on fighting hunger. So I think it's really important to uh, not say that the business world are the bad guys in, uh, in that situation, but at least they need to create profits. But that also would be a little bit of a short-sighted uh, point of view. I think the really the real magic comes if companies feel that it's not only that they want to create profit in the short term, but that they hopefully at some point create that perspective that I feel that we at chair have, is that in order to become a profitable company over the medium or long term, it's really important to satisfy. Real societal needs over the medium and long term. So it could be we could create a very profitable company just by doing a nice advertising campaign or having some nice product, uh, a fidget spinner or whatever. Mm-hmm. We could do a lot of profit by doing that. But over the medium and long term, I doubt whether it would be a very sustainable company. I think what we at Share say is by trying to solve real societal needs, it helps
0: us to create profits uh, over the medium and long term. Mm. also i think it's difficult to separate companies from society because every human being working in in a company is part of society so and also the companies are part of society so but generally of course people have the doubts that companies try to do something bigger than just selling stuff
1: i think unfortunately there's really a lot of negative examples of companies that uh, maximize profit over the over the short term and hence create that image that companies are not to be trusted but there's other companies which uh, are really good examples Uh, companies which really don't care about the short-term profit Mm or founders or bosses that are not incentivized by money only Mm -hmm. everybody needs enough to uh, or everybody wants uh, enough money to lead a good life but do i need do I need to become really rich? Uh, I think there's also companies that don't have that as their own their only goal.
0: Mm. I think it is really hard to do everything right. I just realized by working together with you and Cher, you are really serious about what you're doing. And you can see that in simple and tiny things. For example, I remember we had a meeting with DM in, where are they, in Karlsruhe, mm-hmm. I think which is one hour by car from stuttgart christina and i from heimat we flew there to stuttgart and took the rental car it took us two and a half hours to get there you took the train which took mm. probably six hours or five hours maybe yeah um so you don't fly <laughs> Nah,
1: but that is um i wish that was a i wish that was that said anything about the way i want to do things but uh, it's uh, it's a very convenient anecdote but it's unfortunately not true i do fly a lot i have a rather pragmatic view on these things uh, which is i do want my social balance to be positive at the end and if that means that it's better that I create more value, whatever value we may talk about by being there fast and, and, and flying. Uh, but it enables me to have a better meeting. And by having that better meeting, creating more social value through the sale of uh, my products, then I would also fly. So um, it's not that I say on every dimension, I'm only allowed to always uh, do the most sustainable thing. It's yeah, It's just not my philosophy.
0: I'm glad you cleared that up, because that makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I think in the end, what we want is that we left the world in a better state than we found it, that very old saying. And that may very well mean that you fly a lot, as I am doing it, but it that actually enables me to work on the projects that I, that I work on, really believe in, uh, and hope that they, in total, have a positive social balance.
0: Yeah. I know you like hiking, and uh, I recently saw the news that there was a line to enter the top of Mount Everest. Ah. Did you see that? Yeah. And I thought, hmm, I don't want to blame them, but maybe because of the communications companies like Patagonia and the North Face do, maybe selling that kind of lifestyle, maybe that's one of the reasons why it's getting so crowded there. I'm sure
1: it's not the type of hiking that I'm, uh, that I'm interested in. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is tourism, uh, what they do there. I'm sure there's other mountains that are just as beautiful as uh, Mount Everest. But the reason why there's so many people wanting to go there is, uh, because it's the highest peak, um, because it comes with a lot of prestige, uh, and because there's just so much communication around it. It's just advertising like all the other advertising that is also out there. I remember when, uh, Uniqlo uh, uh, started its, uh, its store in, in New York. I happened to be there. There was a line uh, uh, hundreds of meters. Uh, it's just a hype. Uh, and I think it's a very similar hype uh, on Mount Everest.
0: Yves Schornar of Patagonia and Tompkins from the North Face, they are a good example, I guess, what good entrepreneurs can do with their money or with their power that they have. But wasn't their intention to promote this lifestyle in a way that it gets crowded on the mount everest but in the end uh, you don't know what's what's happening um you have the best intentions and then stuff like that happens i'm sure they're not the only ones to blame or probably they aren't to blame at all but it's a bit tricky sometimes yeah i mean that's one dimension
1: of of their societal impact i'm not too familiar with patagonia and north Face, uh patagonia a little bit more but I think it would be unfair to reduce their impact or th- whatever they leave behind only to Mount Everest and the line that we're seeing there. Uh, I think there's a lot of other things that uh, that probably are much uh, yeah. create much. That
0: more. was also just a personal thought. I don't know if there's any truth to it. It's just what came to my mind because when you see those images of person alone in nature, that's something that's probably also a nice getaway from the digital world. And then it ends up with a line on Mount Everest at some point. Yeah, yeah, unfortunate. So let's talk about how Share was launched and the way that we had together. For us, it was really interesting that it wasn't just creating a campaign. It was beginning with the name, Mm -hmm. then the design, the the packaging, all the basic stuff that Mm -hmm. you needed, website, then, of course, the campaign. Yeah. PR, when you tell people or when you tell other people that we help to work on share, they only think about the bright stuff and uh, the big PR story. But mm-hmm. we did all the basic stuff for the POS and uh, all, yeah. the, all the boring stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting to me was to learn about the truth of the numbers in retail because there is a design for packaging and then you get the numbers and then you learn does it, work, does, or not? Does it work or not mm-hmm. and one fact or one thing that stuck to my mind was when we were creating the packaging for the for the water bottle mm-hmm. it was split in half blue and transparent, transparent. and mm-hmm. then the na- name share on it and you had like i said in your messy um, office room you had uh, hundreds of plastic mm-hmm. bottles from other brands and then ben i guess told me hey we learned if there's not a crown or a mountain on a water bottle, people don't buy it. And I thought, okay, it has got to be bullshit. So I looked at the bottle, and then this bottle appeared to me only blue and transparent, a bit artificial. And then you think, okay, but it's water. You want to refresh yourself. You want to mm-hmm. drink this water. So we thought, okay, how would that look like with the crown? Wow. Maybe a bit more refreshing, but the crown didn't mm. match, so we ended up with the mountain on the water mm. bottle, and to me, it works, and I see the difference that from a design perspective, maybe you want the slicker design, mm. but if you want to sell water to refresh people, it can't be too artificial, I guess, so… yeah how did that um um play out with the numbers what did you learn along the way about the packaging design because yeah. uh, f- just for the listeners we helped you with all these things until the launch and then mm. your company grew yeah. and you have your own design team um, team and so yeah yeah so um i think the The beautiful
1: situation was that we had nothing in the beginning and were able to create everything, starting with the brand name, starting with the logo, selecting the colors, thinking about uh, what the basic design principles should be. It can be quite liberating, such a situation, because you basically get to decide uh, without any uh, legacy decisions there. I think the, the the other interesting component was that we had no idea on how the, the food retail world really works. And speaking specifically of, of packaging design, packaging design is its own uh, science. There are just certain things that you need to have on there to position your brand and to also differentiate yourself from the other uh, brands that are out there. But then the other component is that you really... That there are that there are things that people expect to see on the packaging if they buy water or if they buy uh, a snack bar, and that is not the same as uh, creating uh, a brand that is uh, different to the other brands. It's actually there's uh, it's kind of a conflict that you have because you want to be different uh, from a brand perspective, but at the same time people expect stuff uh, to be on that uh, packaging when they buy a water, and I think the mountains are quite a good example. The, the slick, simple, reduced design that we initially had simply lacked those aspects that people want to see when they buy something for themselves. Yes, they don't buy a brand that they don't know, uh, especially, but they buy a product uh, to satisfy a very basic need in that uh, situation, uh, thirst uh, and convenience. And so they expect there to be certain learned elements, which, in the case of water, could be a mountain uh, or could be uh, water <laughs> in some in some manner uh, or some other design elements. And I think those two things you need to balance, especially in the beginning, if nobody knows your brand, um, they won't buy the product because of the brand, but they buy the product especially because of the category-specific uh, uh, language that you uh, that you have on there. And I think it's something that we still. I think that it's something that almost every brand struggles with. Uh, in reality, I think a lot of brands never really understood it, but were either lucky or unlucky. And the lucky ones happened to stick in, in the shops and on the shelves and still still be in the market. We were lucky on certain products. We were unlucky on others. But we tried to really understand and do a lot of testing of how strong can we communicate the brand, and what are the elements that people still expect uh, on the packaging. Now, we have a couple of nut mixes now on the table, um, and you will see that there is this combination. We have a very prominent logo uh, on the packaging, but then there's a lot of illustrations which uh, explain to you what you actually can expect in the as the product itself so for the nut mix some of them are with almonds and with uh, banana and with some apple chunks or with some coffee beans uh, and you really need to have them on the packaging because people expect to see on the packaging not only to read what uh, what the product uh, contains but uh, also to see it visually
0: yeah people don't read also people yeah uh,
1: and 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 they just they They've over decades of time. They've learned on how to buy products on the supermarket or drugstore shelves, and the thing that they learned is simply that there's some visual indication of what uh, what they're about to buy.
0: Yeah, and when you have the power to design your own brand, then on one side you have the personal taste, and you think, okay, this is what I would like this brand to look like. But then there's reality, and share is a brand that is relevant for everybody so it's a pretty broad group of people who could potentially buy your products and i think yeah sticking to the slick design that you personally like might end up you not being around anymore before people get the design so Absolutely. maybe if it's if it's your vision to be more slick and less playful than you are now then it's probably smarter to start with something that people understand and then Take out the playfulness and uh, be more slick time after time down so the road. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's uh, it's also one of the struggles that we experienced, um, especially with a project such as Share, where people people very quickly like the idea and they very quickly get emotionally invested. Uh, and designers and creative directors and ad agency uh, bosses, they have their own view on how they would like that brand to be. Uh, but at the same time, this is only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that there are certain design and communication principles in that industry that you have to factor in. Um, and uh, and that's something that we struggled with. Also being such an inexperienced team, working with ad agencies, working in the industry to really bring together those two perspectives. There's a brand that we're building but there are also certain necessities that you simply have to um, that, that you have to check uh, when positioning such a uh, such a product on shelves
0: mm. Another thing for creatives it's always easy to say yeah let's do the risky stuff let's do a brave campaign. Of course it has to make sense and not just be super uh, provocative and then people um, don't like you anymore but yeah, what I'm trying to say is, f- for me as a creative, it's easy to say, yeah, do this. This is going to be uh, brave and this will get you noticed. And then on the other side, you have this fragile thing, your your brand that you want to launch. And then you think, okay, maybe let's not go with this headline. I still yeah. have two headlines that I really like that we didn't run. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what exactly the reason was. I think y- you have... I mean, we, we didn't talk about this. You have two pretty strong partners in the retail world, which mm-hmm. are Reva and DM. Those are the biggest retail. Uh, uh, yeah. River is one of the biggest supermarkets, and DM is a drugstore. chain. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they also had something to say about your launch campaign. And Absolutely, yeah. Reva is located in Cologne, and Cologne has this famous Cologne Cathedral. Mm-hmm. So we thought about a headline that was better than Jesus. You turn water into wells, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we really liked this headline. Then you came back. Ah, maybe it's not a good thing to to uh, get in the context of religion in this mm-hmm. way. And then we thought, okay, that's fair point because better than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we can frame that differently. So. Then we ended up, Jesus likes that. You turn water into wells. Mm. It is not against Jesus, not against mm. religion, but still. Mm, Less didn't, provocative. Yeah. yeah. You, you didn't run this headline, which um, was probably good, but I still remember it and I would still have loved to see the reactions of people to this line. Yeah. Um, so
1: fortunately, I wasn't... Uh, involved in the selection of uh, of certain lines i also wouldn't say that it was because of our retail partners I mean, obviously we have to we have to think about the interests and opinions of all the partners that are are making this project uh, grow and uh, and helping it to to hopefully succeed at some point but i would say there's there are two thoughts with that the very first one is obviously it's our baby share and we are investing so much time into it and we believe that there's so much it's not only a business, it's something that has that can really make the world better. And hence we want to protect it. And hence we are to a certain extent also risk averse because we feel it's such a powerful idea. It would really be just too bad if we risked the success um chances only by trying to be too provocative. Huh? So we really uh we're really protective almost like with a child uh, when building something like that. But the other thing is, I do understand that being provocative and taking risks is something that you have to do when building something new. But what I don't like is if you are provocative only because you want to be provocative or if you don't think it through. I understand we have to be provocative, but then it needs to be a conscious decision. And too often I meet other people that just throw out the provocative line but they do it because they want to be provocative and they didn't think about uh, the risks that it brings and the opportunities that it brings. I'm very fine if we think about the risk reward uh, ratio. If we come to the conclusion that's a risk worth taking, then we should be doing it. But just to be provocative because of trying to, or because liking to be provocative, um, that I think is a very easy thing. Everybody can do that. It's not hard to come up with a provocative line, everybody can do that. But I want to understand why that is the right provocative line and why it's worthwhile taking that risk in that situation. And uh, and I very especially in ad agency contexts, I very seldom meet people that can explain to me why this is the risk that is uh, worth taking.
0: Mm. Have you worked with ad agencies before, Share? yeah I have.
1: Um, I've worked with two ad agencies, uh, also one of them, a very big one international, a very internationally big one at Chat Emil. And it's something that I struggle with a little bit. Uh, if I also feel that my projects are somehow the opportunity for them to to position themselves and to create something that creates some buzz and some uh, media attention, but it's um, sometimes struggle with what I cherish so much in the consultancy world is um, that things are very well thought through also in first order and second order uh, effects while communication sometimes the communication concepts and ideas that we uh, that we received were always very edgy and uh, and interesting but not thought through
0: to the end i felt mm. how i never asked you that and i never asked the guys how did you meet the founders of Heimat and how did they get involved with share yeah uh, it's a super story and I think it's as it is so often. Uh, a
1: friend of mine, I told him that uh, I'm actually considering working with the same ad agency as I did with Jedemil. I, I worked with uh, a couple of them actually, and then in the end we found one that we were really happy with. And uh, and he told me no, he knows another agent agency in in Berlin, and whether I'm interested in meeting the uh, the founders. I said yes, sure. And so I first met Andreas, um, and I really liked Andreas's think chief strategy officer um, yeah. at, at Heimat. And I thought it was a really nice conversation that we had. And I felt I could work well with him. And then in the second meeting, he introduced uh, uh, me to the other two founders, Guido and Matthias. And it was a very uh, pragmatic, uh, easy uh, kind of conversation. And they were... I thought that they were intrinsically uh, interested in in the project Um, and I thought there was a lot of energy there. And So we uh, we had a handshake deal uh, at the end of that meeting, which uh, felt as if we were all interested in the same thing and wanted to make this happen and didn't really need to negotiate over the terms, which felt very uh, liberating. Uh, And then uh, uh, a fantastic partnership uh, developed.
0: And then you moved into the Heimat offices as well? Yeah, I mean, it's uh,
1: beautiful. They, uh, first, they gave us one table in a big uh, office, and it was only three of us. Uh, and so we set that one table amongst uh, 10 other tables. And, uh, yeah. and then we grew, and we uh, then uh, transferred uh, to the floor that you were sitting on and had our own room there. And from there, we moved into our first uh, real office, so they gave us our own floor um, where they are sitting actually now themselves, the two, the three founders. We sat there uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, we were probably five. And then in the end, we were 15 in that uh, two rooms uh, on a separate floor. Uh, and from there, we then moved to a couple of different offices. Uh,
0: How many people are working at Share today? Somewhere around 35. Okay. So you started with four people. Now you're almost 10 times more. How did you recruit the people and how did you get the right people on board?
1: Yeah, so we actually started as two. Uh, it was Ben and me. Okay. Um, and then Iris came and then Toby came. Toby was number four. Um, and then we said, okay, the four of us were, were the founders. And I think it's, uh, it's a typical startup story. So you first recruit within your, your own networks which I still think is the best way on how to build a team uh, through recommendations and through people that you know uh, from before. So I know uh, Ben uh, was one of my first employees at Chad Emil. Iris worked also at BCG and, uh, and the, un- the United Nations. Uh, and Toby is uh, a very good friend of two very good friends of mine. And that's then the way that we built the very first uh, team but I think at some point in the life stage of a uh, of a project, you need to uh, incorporate more professional uh, hiring, hiring mechanisms. Not only hiring, but also then uh, developing people, um, managing people. And we are in that stage already since quite a while. So we now have a own HR department here uh, in the company um, who does the recruiting, but also then the, the development of people uh, and the management of people. I think it's... We in the beginning you often hire for enthusiasm and for energy and for network, uh, and we now definitely need to hire more for uh, experience and uh, and management capacity and uh, um, yeah for those those things.
0: Do you always? I think especially in the beginning you get a lot of people who really have this intrinsic motivation that they want to build something bigger, and then when you need on all these disciplines that come together you need more experience and more professional people do you always find people who are who have the same motivation like probably the core of share
1: head i think there's a certain culture in the company of people that are that really love the idea and we fortunately in my view or in my perception we have multiple of the amount of uh, of wow. applicants uh, than at other companies um but people come for different motivations. Um, some people come because of our mission uh, and the core idea of share, but other people also come because it's a fast-growing, um, uh, dynamic uh, environment with very good people uh, in there. Uh, and they see that this is the right environment for them to grow personally. I don't want to hire anyone that lacks completely lacks the first um, component. Um, So you have to be motivated by the mission that we have. But then uh, I'm also fine uh, if you say you want to become the best marketing uh, person or the best supply chain uh, manager and you're willing to do that within the the environment that we can offer you, salary, et cetera, et cetera,
0: then um, yeah, this can be your home here. Mm. Recruiting is also a big topic for ad agencies. And I think within the last years, it has gotten a bit harder to find the right people are good people generally for agencies also from what i know from people in other agencies i'm not sure but one thing that always comes up is that people who want to work creatively they can go to startups as well maybe ad agencies have lost some talent to to startups i was never interested in in startups because that's probably a stereotype but like we said earlier probably also 50% of it is true. I don't really like startups or they are not attractive to me because I think a lot of them want to build something really quickly. They want to collect money, as much money as they can possibly get. And then sometimes they don't really spend the money wisely because it's not their own money. And so if their idea doesn't work, they leave and and everything turns to shit. (laughs) And then the other thing that can happen is that people just want to sell the company again for as much money as possible and then leave so a lot of times i think there isn't really the intention to build something solid sustainable and stay there they just want to do something really quick get rich and leave that's why working in startups was never attractive to me but like i said i don't know much about startups Mm. i think you know way more about startups than i do so what is your perspective on this Yeah.
1: So these startups definitely exist, just like the other type of startup similar to Share also exists, where people really believe in the idea. But I guess my other question would then be, what's the difference to an ad agency, which basically does whatever it pays? I would argue, as the startup guy, that an ad agency is even worse, because in my perception, you do a lot of uh, stuff that isn't interesting to anyone sitting on the team you kind of try to make it interesting for you guys because you see some sort of game in there or some sort of ability to to um i guess my feeling is that most of you guys are interested in uh in the clients because they enable you to bring out that message to a lot of people while you really don't care about the brand uh, i guess the the the, the best uh, outcome would be to find um to find an environment that truly believes in what it does and that you feel attracted to.
0: That's where the real magic happens I hope. Good point fair point. To me um, in ad agencies it's somehow more honest because we're not pretending to do something else than just <laughs> bringing it out to as many people as possible in a short time whereas yeah. when you found a company you somehow get the feeling okay this should be something that lasts for a while or a long time and maybe yeah. for generations and that's that's not our job. Our job is to help at certain points to make it famous (laughs) yeah yeah i really it has a lot to do with honesty being transparent
1: in in what you want to achieve as a startup you always have to there are certain things that you have to say in order to have a chance and they obviously it always has to be everything needs to be amazing and it needs to be super successful and you want to do it forever and unfortunately there are a lot of uh, um but there's a good portion of startups which will still tell you that everything is fine, but the next day they're closing closing business. Yeah, exactly. Um, or they will tell you that's the one thing that they want to do until the end of their lives and then they sell it a week thereafter. Just like those players exist in the corporate world or with the big clients that really don't care about uh, their customers, but they're interested in the bottom line and the profit. But only because those exist doesn't mean that There's also the startups, but also the companies um, that are intrinsically motivated by the core of their business and want to create something that is sustainable, that survives the next decades, that's still there for generations to come. And uh, both of us are in the business world at the moment. I think we should strive to work for organizations that are not motivated by the short term, but are motivated by at least the medium term.
0: I think I forgot to um, talk about the motivation of rewe and dm we mentioned that this is also something that they i think really believe in but even harder to for some people to believe that share's motivation is really to help the world become a better place it's harder for people to believe that rewe and dm are not only doing this to put themselves in a better light so i would i mean it's it's a bit simplistic to say that share
1: only exists to create a better world share um, is a business and I'm a major shareholder in that business so I do want to have enough money to buy a house uh, which I will do now relatively soon so I congrats yeah so I only I also do want to have some income and I ideally don't want to worry whether we'll have enough money in retirement so there is that component as well just as much as when I worked for the UN I was interested on the salary that I'm making but just as important it is to me that I'm able when I'm in retirement to look back and say I did something meaningful, and I'm fortunate now that I've made enough money that I the meaningful part becomes more and more important important in my life. Now speaking of Reva and DM, I think we can count ourselves as extremely lucky that we found Reva and DM, which are the equivalent to Apple and Google. With uh, my last startup, Share Meal, they were extremely. Uh, They have an enormous leverage. Uh, We're talking about more than 5,000 stores where our products are being sold. You can imagine that it's a huge factor for the success of uh, of share. In regards to their motivation, it's a little bit difficult to speak about the motivation of these big corporates because there are so many people involved in these corporates that all somehow play a role in decision-making. I think our big luck was that we were able to convince the most senior managing directors in both organizations uh, that that is something that is intrinsically worthwhile doing. I think the, this point of view that a, that a company is more successful all, if it also does something positive for society, that's a train of thought that is the more senior managers get, the more they believe into that. And so we were fortunate to be able to speak with these very senior managers and that they bought into that idea. I think with the, the rest of the organization, in, in both cases, the motivation is a different one. Uh, I think some of them really believe in the intrinsic value of trying to do something, even though they don't know whether over the short term it will help the, the, the company. Uh, and then there's a uh, Others that feel that this is a cop that this is a, a competitive advantage versus the other companies that are in the same market. I think overall, I think the fortunate situation that we're in is that people believe in what we do and that this is a worthwhile game or a worthwhile try to do. Yeah, it's something. Well, sometimes you don't only think about the business perspective, but also think about whether that really interests me or or whether I feel it's a worthwhile endeavor, a, a worthwhile adventure. So that plays a huge role, but fortunately, fortunately, I can also tell uh, my partners that there will be such a big media attention on this project and it will help them so nicely to position themselves uh, in the recruiting market. Look at the ad agencies, every ad agency that I've worked with so far, they've they win awards with us. They uh, are in the media. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of indirect benefit of working with us that then also turns this business case, the the, the very narrow business case, I hope, uh, to the positive.
0: Mm. And you're not competing with other organizations that want to help. You're trying to create a bigger market to get more donations or to get more money for those causes. Yeah. I mean, basically, we want to push out the
1: corporate, uninspiring, profit solely profit motivated other brands. Shelf space is limited. It's not that the supermarkets magically grow when they list uh, share products, but if they take a share product, they need to kick out someone else. Mm. That's the uh, that's the the fierce reality uh, of uh, fast moving consumer goods. I want to kick out the bad ones. Uh, I want to have a social alternative or a. a beneficial societal beneficial brand in on the shelves where I can tell you as a consumer, if you buy us, you will actually make the world a better place. Uh, it's not that you pollute the world, it's not that uh, whoever provided the coffee is being paid something that he cannot even sustain himself uh, with, uh, but you can be certain that if you buy a product from us, you are actually making the world a better place. Not only it's something good for you, but it's also something good for society. That's what I want to achieve. I don't care whether it's share or whether it's another brand. Fortunately, I'm beyond the point that I only need to think about my projects. It would be—I find it very hard to justify if I stand in front of a mirror and entered into a competition with other social brands or with other non-profit organizations. The beauty with us, I believe, is that there are so many bad guys that we can kick out, uh, and there's so much more shelf space that could benefit from uh, a good social alternative that I don't need to worry about entering into a competition with other um, societal beneficial stakeholders. Mm.
0: Another thing that is different than with other social brands or with other um, organizations where you can help, on each product there's a QR code that you can scan and then you'll immediately see on your smartphone where your help is ending up. How does that work? How well do people receive that? How do they use it? We don't do the
1: social programs ourselves, uh, but, for example, if you buy a snack bar, the social intervention, as we called it in that that space, is, for example, being done by the United Nations World Food Programme, so my old employer. It's just beautiful. We both ate one of our uh, snack bars, chocolate and sea salt, the last generation of snack bars that we have. Tastes very good, by the way. (laughs) And, and it also is selling so much better than the first generation of bars. For every one of those bars, we are enabling the UN to uh, distribute high-energy biscuits. I need to show them to you. It's really fascinating to see those uh, in refugee camps, for example. And so we don't do these interventions ourselves, but we work with other partners that can do it much better than we can. And in the end, we tell you through, that QR bo- bar, uh, through the QR code on on our packaging, for every product that you buy, who is the social partner that will then provide the equivalent to someone in need and where that happens. So in that case, if you scan the QR code on that bar, may very well be. I don't know which which partner is being supported by that bar, but it may very well be that you see it's the United Nations and it's a refugee camp in Bangladesh, for example. Now, in regards to um, uh, consumers, the interesting uh, Uh, learning that we did is that it's most important to people that they have the certainty that they could investigate on who is being supported but that only a minor fraction then really does it so it's important for people to have that trust that uh, we are taking it serious and that there's really reputable effective organizations involved into this but only about a percent Of consumers then really want to know in detail and really go through the process of checking everything and um, and and then finally also seeing where uh, where that specific product then in the end helped
0: yeah I just scanned that um, cereal bar and this help is going to kids in the Republic of Congo with food at schools school meals Yeah. yeah
1: fantastic intervention school meals which organization is it that we're working on there with I'm scrolling down the page. It is the World Food Programme. Yeah, Yeah. so it is the United Nations. School meals is a fantastic intervention. It's meals that are being distributed at schools, and they have this double benefit of first fighting hunger, but then also supporting education. Um, It often is that kids are only able to go to schools uh, because they're also being fed there and they don't have to go and work uh, uh, so that they get something to eat but they can actually work at school so to speak uh, and also are being fed there and they also often get a so-called take home ration so that if families are able to send their kids to school they're giving they're getting uh, a take home ration that then also feeds the uh, rest of the family members
0: mm. people ask themselves when they donate okay is my money really used effectively or in the best way because you have so much experience in this field i assume that your help is pretty effectively organized
1: yeah i think the tabloid headline would be everything is being uh, being handled in a 100 percent effective manner and uh, and you don't need to worry amongst adults uh, we know that social uh, programs just like any other program as well and any other business they hopefully work but sometimes they also don't work just like your projects at the ad agencies uh, some of them work better and others don't work as well but what you need what your role is in the ad agency and what my role here at the business share is and what the role of the un is 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 to really maximize the projects that work well and to minimize those where there's some sort of not-so-good development. So it needs to be, in the end, just like any other project, it needs to be managed well. And that's why we work with these very reputable, very experienced, very large organizations with scale uh, scale effects, because we want to minimize the number of projects that don't work well, well and maximize those that are really effective. People are often worried that there's this super big percentage of their money that is not being put to the best use. Fortunately, that is not the case. Uh, there are a lot of studies out there that are concerned with the effectiveness of, uh, of funds being invested into social programs. and the uneffective amount which goes into corruption or a, which just ends up in the wrong programs uh, is in the low one percent uh, digit um, uh, sorry one one digit uh, percentage range. Mm. So the, the vast majority of funds are being, is being used to, um, to effective
0: purposes. Sometimes when there's a um, catastrophe that's pretty prominent on the news, earthquake or tsunami, then you can donate for that purpose to help people in that area. And somebody once told me that when you donate money, and then, for example, on the postcard from Greenpeace or whatever, you can cross for which project you're donating and the bad thing about donating to one special project is that when this issue is pretty prominent on the news a lot of people donate and then in the end there's a lot of money on the bank that people have donated for this cause but they don't need any more money and so this money stays on the bank and they can't spend it any other way so this is also a tricky thing (laughs) when you donate yeah um Exactly. I mean,
1: ideally, we'd only be funneling the donations into purposes where they're most needed and have the biggest social return on investment, the biggest social impact. Yeah. And just like any other investment decision, uh, it's not as easy and it's not as clear cut. So while I think there's always the opportunity to investigate a little more and to calculate a little bit more and to optimize a little bit more so that the return, the social return on your donation is the highest. And that's definitely something that is worthwhile doing. I think it should not stop us from providing funds for social purposes at all. It very rarely is the case that there's money left in the bank. There's usually always something that you can do. And it's much better that there is something to work with then there's nothing because you're not certain whether it's being put to, um, to the most optimal uh, purpose. Mm. And I would say, while we in general say that $1 invested into hunger programs has a social return on investment of around $20, even if you don't find the most optimal uh, intervention, it will be still be a $10 return on investment
0: and hence be a very, very good thing to do. Mm. So... What is your vision for share for the next years?
1: So I love the idea share. I think it's something that that has a place in society, that or a justification to exist. I think it's not one of these many other brands that in the end it's just a nice twist or it's a little bit of a better product or it's a, a nice gag. Uh, I I think share really has something that makes society better and a very beautiful core idea, that idea that societies are better if you share. So I really want this to work. So I think my role really is to now make sure that it grows as fast as it can while being as stable uh, as it can. And I want to, within the next uh, one, two, three years, I want to build that foundation that share will be there for the next decades to come. And once uh, we've achieved that, my decision will need to be whether I'm most uh, valuable as part of the share team or whether I give it to uh, uh, to the team that is running it right now or whether I um, stay on board, uh, whether I do something else. I'm certain it will not be a boring future.
0: Yeah. You launched with three categories, cereal bars, the water and the soap. Now you just launched the toothbrushes, I guess. Yeah. And you have the nut mix, nut mix. Mm-hmm. and and we have a, a hand sanitizer here in front of us. Yeah. So how many more, uh, how many space in the shelves do you want to get for share products in the future? Yeah, I think that's um,
1: that's one of the beautiful uncertainties of that project. I think the idea: you buy something, and by doing so, you also uh, enable someone else to get an equivalent. We can also do that with uh, clothes. We can do it with uh, writing instruments. We can do it with financial instruments or financial products, credit cards, uh, bank accounts. Uh, So uh, theoretically, the idea could apply to a lot of different products and services, and we could cooperate with a lot of uh, companies on that as well. But it may also turn out that just one of the products that we built works so much better than all the other products that we say, Let's leave aside all these other products um, and we roll out the snack bars globally. I don't know what will happen. I guess my strategy is right now we need to build as many products as we can to identify winners. uh, And then we decide, do we have a handful of winners and we still want to be an umbrella brand? Or do we say, hey, from now on, we're only a toothbrush company and
0: uh, and we roll out the toothbrushes globally. So at some point when... Share is big enough, and you are not necessarily needed here. And there's something more interesting for you personally, maybe. And you sell your part in share, you sell your shares. What are you going to do with this money? Are you going to donate it? Or, um,
1: yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's also a very fair question. And I think it wouldn't be serious huh? to now say that I know what would happened in that situation, but. I guess my perspective would be I've kind of made the, the choice and I hope it will prove over the next decades to come that for my life, I, uh, I doubt that it will get better by having more money. I need a minimum amount of money so that I can focus on things and don't need to worry about my living situation. But I think the I mean, there's also studies on that, that the even more money doesn't make it better. And hence, whether I donate it or whether I keep it and say, by having more money, I'm able to do more projects that interest me, which I suspect will always have some sort of uh, social dimensions to them. I, to be honest, I don't know, I'm not in a situation, but I will want to keep enough money to not worry about my lifestyle, that I know. But I, uh, if that day would be tomorrow, which could be, right, we've had offers to sell share And I guess if the right offer comes, I'd consider it, or I've already considered it, but I came to the conclusion it's not the right offer. If it happened today, I would not immediately donate it because I'd still want to see whether I can use it for another project, which in the end needs to have a bigger societal impact than than only by donating it. I kind of feel that if I do it myself, I can have
0: more of an impact than if I give it to someone else. So bottom line, it sounds like uh, whatever is going to happen, the money will be in good hands. Hmm. And by selling share to another company or another person, if it was tomorrow, if it's um, a good choice, it's probably because that setup would have even more power than yeah. you have yourself, right? Yeah.
1: Um, so we you know, there are these super global consumer goods companies, whether they're Unilever, Procter, Danone, Nestle, whatever the names are, some of them have indicated that they want to buy a share. It'd be terribly embarrassing if I did it for the money. Uh, I'd be, what would I tell your team, you? Yeah? You've invested free time into this project, and I'd tell you, well, it was really nice of you to do that, uh, and I made a lot of money now. Yeah? I'd have to somehow be able to explain myself. In the end, also in front of myself. And I guess the only argumentation that you can build is that the mission of share gets a boost by working with someone else, which it would otherwise not have had. Now, specifically, if it was one of these big consumer goods companies, theoretically, we've now uh, our mineral water bottle is one of the most sustainable in Germany. Uh, it's the first, very first one that is 100% from recycled material. Uh, that has a lot of impact. Eh? If, theoretically, the company that buys us, I would say you can only do that if you change your whole global supply chain to only using the bottles that, that we are using and that technology that we've basically brought into the German market. I, I, the, the social impact would likely be higher than what I can achieve on my own by only running share without that global partner. So I'd have to come up with some sort of logic like that, that uh, such a sale enables us to reach our mission in a better manner than only by ourselves.
0: Mm. In Berlin, there's not only a lot of startups, I just realized that there's also what's called a social startup scene. Mm. You are probably one of their biggest players and… Do you have any contact to other social brands in Berlin? Yeah, a lot. What what is what is the network like? I think it's a very
1: um, it's a very good network. It's a a fortunate situation. We really help each other out. The only reason why we got DM as a partner is because there's another social startup Einhorn. Uh, They produce condoms and now female hygiene products. They introduced us, a potential competitor, or at least a potential share of awareness of that partner, uh, DM. They introduced us with them, or to them. Um, and so that had an immense impact on uh, on on the progress the chair made. Now, it's similar. We give back. Now, not necessarily we weren't able to give back as much to Anhorn, but there's other companies, other social startups that we are helping out. I think the fortunate situation that we're in is that we all say there's just such a huge market um, that by helping each other, we will all grow and it's not, a, it's not that it, it hinders uh, the other one because there's just so many other products which are not social um, that we can still uh, push out of the market.
0: How many social startups are there in Berlin? Have well, any?
1: I would say, I mean, there's of a similar size as us. There's maybe five or something like that um, that I know and probably mm. another 10 that I don't know. Uh, and then there's just hundreds of uh, five people teams yeah. that are working on something smaller. Mm. Yeah, I would say I probably know 10 of our size and I would assume that there's another 10 that I don't know. And then there's just hundreds
0: of smaller ones. So that's where all the people going who are not going to ad agencies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. But yeah. a lot of them actually uh, also
1: spun out of ad agencies. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, a good example is uh, the Lemonade charity uh, team. Uh, even though they didn't spin out, but they had a lot of help in a similar setup as we did from an ad, ad agency. But uh, there's this other one, Stop the Water While Using Me. Mm-hmm. I think that ba- I don't. I mean, from what I know, is that they are basically the uh, the idea from an
0: ad yeah, agency. Yeah, yeah, that came from the design department, I guess, from that agency. And mm-hmm. but it's it's a niche product, I guess. It's a niche product. It's,
1: it's, uh, there's a lot of these niche products out there. And I think in the fast-moving consumer goods uh, environment, we're the first ones that really go in with a lot of energy, a lot of speed, a lot of risk appetite too, uh, that don't only want to be in one category, but say we really want to see for every product that you can buy in a supermarket or in a drugstore, whether we can build uh, a product there.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the, the field is so big and when we started to work on share we thought about okay what's the motivation for people to buy one of your products of course the simplest reason is just they are thirsty they want to water and mm-hmm. the other reason is that people they want to do something good yeah and good we realized also that um, in in africa people starving it's it's not something that you realize every day here and i think by scanning that qr code that's one way to bring that a bit closer and what i think the first idea that we never did that i wrote down when i started to work um, for share was that when you scan the qr code you could also just by existing apis tell the person who scanned the qr code how long it would take them to take a trip to senegal for example Mm -hmm. and then by google flights or whatever it would Mm -hmm. tell you okay the social intervention you're supporting is in the north of Senegal, and it would take you 14 hours to get there. So mm-hmm. it's actually it is not another world; it yeah. is one world, and people forget that because it's it's really abstract. Because the poverty it's it's unbelievable uh, for people living in Germany or countries like Germany.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, it's um, I. You don't I, you know I love uh, the idea share, and I I think it's. Uh, it's uh, the opportunity to also think about how small the world is and how 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 these people are just like us as well. Only that uh, we were born here in a very, very fortunate situation and we don't really need to worry about uh, uh, our lives. And just 14 hours or in other cases, we are also working with the food banks in Germany. There's one and a half million people in Germany going to food banks and it's just around the corner. Yeah, I think it, it helps to to understand that uh, they are just like us it's not this distant thing but
0: we're all in the same boat Mm, that's it from my side thank you very much for taking the time and thank you very much for running share (laughs) yeah thanks for helping us good luck and a lot of success (laughs) (laughs) thanks